Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 105th episode of the Atlas Society Ask. My name is Lawrence Olivo. I'm the associate editor here at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand through creative ways like our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and creative social media content. Today, we are joined by the Atlas Society Senior Scholar and Philosopher, Dr. Stephen Hicks, and the Atlas Society Senior Fellow and Objectivist Writer, Robert Trzinski. Today, they'll be discussing art and didacticism, in art education, along with providing an objectivist perspective on the Buffalo Shooter Manifesto. As always, please feel free. We encourage you to post your questions in the comment section, and we'll be sure to cover as many as we can. But to start things off, Rob, talk to us about art. Okay, great. So what I want to talk about uh, in, in the sort of tie-in to current events is what I see as the prevailing school of art right now, the uh, sort of highbrow school of art, which is that art has a didactic role, that it's political, that it has to have the right political message. And that's the most important thing. And you see that all around. The most recent ones I saw were, you know, you have the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And that's not art, but it's similar to that, where you have this idealized view of the, of the female body and they, you know, they put a plus size model and Mae Musk, who's 72, and a woman with a, uh, a the C-section scar. It's this whole political message there about accepting different body types. And that the political message takes precedence over the idea that, you know, back in my day, Sports Illustrated was about young men wanting to see uh, pictures of attractive, scantily clad women. Uh, or the uh, op-ed in the New York Times recently defending the idea that artists, that the actors could portray roles that were other than exactly what they what they were. In other words, actors should be able to actually act. Uh, but instead, there's a viewpoint that no, if you're acting, uh, you have to. If you're if you're if the character you're playing is gay, you have to be gay. If the character you're playing is a certain racial or ethnic background, you have to be that exact shade of racial or ethnic background. Um, and it's this idea that everything has to be judged by the standard of politics, which seems a really artificial and limiting and, like I said, a very didactic approach to take to art. Now, that raises a lot of questions, though, about what is art, what, is it, what does it do for us, what is it we're looking for in art, and where does a political message or political overtones or a larger message, where does that fit into what we're looking for from art? So, and I think that's especially true for, you know, for objectivists, for advocates of Ayn Rand's ideas that, you know, she popularized it away, popularized her philosophy and including her political philosophy by dramatizing it in works of fiction. So, you know, there were definitely political themes in Ayn Rand's novels, but what's the difference between that and didacticism art? So I wanted to go, you know, we're talking about art, we got to have images. So I'm going to do a quick uh, screen share here and uh, I'm going to take you through some examples here. Now, in explaining the role of art and what art does for us, I wanted to start with uh, the Renaissance, uh, a theme that emerged out of the Renaissance in Florence. Now, every culture needs some sort of image of what human life is like, what mankind himself is like, what man himself is capable of, some image to sum up what's possible to them in life. And for the, in Florence in the, in the 1400s, the dawn of the Renaissance, one of the images that they used frequently was David from the story of David and Goliath. You know, this uh, small scrappy shepherd boy who takes on this giant 
and defeats him using his uh, using a sling. And it's just, you know, the same way we use David and Goliath today, the idea of a, the scrappy underdog taking on more powerful rivals, overcoming the odds and succeeding. And that's how the Florentines viewed, them, viewed themselves. So they, they identified with David in the story of David and Goliath. And so they did a whole series of uh, sculptures on the theme of the, the character of, of David from this story. So the first one I want to show you is from Donatello, circa 14, about, around about 1450. <coughs> and you'll, so you notice this, you have the second of the story of David. At the bottom of the, uh, by, the by David's feet, there is this giant head, the head of, uh, uh, of Goliath after he's been defeated. And he's carrying this, this giant sword that he's just used to chop off Goliath's head. But notice how big the sword is, how clunky, sort of how oversized it is for him. And notice that David here, he's got this sort of hat that's supposed to show him as a shepherd boy, you know, in, in at least the Renaissance vision of, of what uh, the kind of hat a shepherd would wear. And the, 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 he has this very confident pose with his hand cocked on his hips. But the musculature is very under, underdeveloped. He has basically the, the physique of about a nine or 10 year old boy. He looks relatively small and that's emphasizing the smallness of David relative to Goliath. Well, about 25 years later, circa 1475, you get this version from Verrocchio. And you'll see David's undergone a little development here. He's got a more defined musculature, similar pose, the hand on the hip the, the, and the head at the feet but he has a more defined musculature. Uh, you know, you can see his abdomen, you, uh, his abdominals, you can see uh, the defined muscles of the arms. If you were to guess, you know, how old he was, you probably say more, not nine or 10, but more like 12 or 14. And then about 25 years later, in the first couple of years of the 1500s, like 1501 to 1505, somewhere in there, Michelangelo creates the most famous version of the David, which is this one. Now, if you were to guess, how old is David in this one? You'd have to say, well, he's like 18. He's, you know, he's fully grown. He's strongly built. Uh, he's not as fleshed out and burly as he might be, you know, if, for an older character. But he, he, so he's still a youth, but he is a very strongly developed, uh, full grown youth. So he's, you know, you guess going to be about 18. The strength of the limbs is very evident here. But you have the same sort of self-confident pose that you've had in the previous ones. But the self-confidence is backed up by more, backed up by a greater degree of physical strength and capability. And so you can see in this development of these three different Davids that David keeps getting bigger and stronger. He has that air of cocky self-confidence, but more than that, he has more of the strength to back up that self-confidence. So you sort of see the Florentine view of themselves and of their capabilities as growing in power and stature. Now I'm going to skip ahead to one more David to help sort of round this out. This one is uh, from Rome from about six, in the 1620s. So you're leaping forward a little bit, but this is Bernini's David. Now, if you know, we've seen, we've got a whole other level up with this one. If you were to say, how old is this David? You probably guess he's about 25. He looks like an Olympic athlete. He's, you know, this big burly guy with a strong jaw winding up. Uh, what you don't see in this image is that this, the amazing thing about this particular sculpture is it's very interesting from all different sides. You go all the different sides, you see different aspects of it because he has this incredible twisting motion that he's doing. But you see him winding up to, to let go with that, uh, with that, um, with, with the sling that he has in his hands. 
but you see it here that, it, that he's no longer really the underdog. You know, David has become the Goliath. He's a big strapping lad. And when he's winding up with that sling, you know that he's going to put a hurt on somebody with that. All right. So um, I'm going to put all four images side by side. So I think this is a really interesting way to look at it. So you see that this is over a period of about 150 years. Uh, well, maybe a little more, just a little more than 150 years. And you see this development from, you know, David as this uh, young boy uh, with a fairly undeveloped musculature and David getting bigger and stronger and more capable and becoming, you know, really a, a, a power, becoming himself the Goliath at the end. And I think this is a great way to talk about the role of art because what you see reflected in here, uh, reflected and to some extent anticipated in these works of art is the, the changing view of human potential among the Renaissance humanists. That they're coming with, you know, at first David's small and weak, and you can see in this one on the far left, the one from Donatello, you can see that in the original story, the idea is it's only with the power of God that he could possibly have defeated this giant uh, Goliath. But by the end, you're like, well, Goliath doesn't stand a chance, right? Uh, uh, he doesn't need God. He's powerful on his own. So you see this sort of growing sense of the power and efficacy of man. And that goes along, of course, with the Renaissance Basically, you know, that this revival of knowledge, this revival of learning, they're building the biggest domes and the biggest cathedrals and that, you know, that they are uh, um, reconstructing and then surpassing the achievements they've rediscovered from the classical world. So you see how this is reflecting their sense of self-confidence and the sense of the power of the human mind. So this is, the, this is really Renaissance humanism, the belief in the power of human beings to, to think and to create and to achieve being reflected in their artwork. Now, Ayn Rand, when she defines art, she talks about how art is a selective recreation of reality based on an artist's metaphysical value judgments. So let me break that into the two parts here. You can see how there's a selective recreation of reality, that the artist has a choice in how he portrays David, what stance is he in, how big is he, how defined are his muscles, how old is he, how, you know, what, what, what pose is he in. He has all these choices that you see being reflected in these different uh, versions of David. Uh, but also then those choices reflect the metaphysical value judgments. Now, metaphysical value judgments basically means your view of the basic nature of reality and of man's place in reality. And you can see how the choices made by these artists are reflecting this greater sense of the power and confidence and efficacy of man uh, that you know, reflects the, the Renaissance culture uh, that is producing these works. Now, personally, by the way, I like the uh, Michelangelo David the best. I find the Bernini version like many things with Bernini to be a little over the top. He's sort of the, uh, he's sort of the Michael Bay action film of sculptures. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of special effects, very bombastic, but a little over the top, but you can see how it reflects the cultural trends going on at the time. All right. So the problem though, how do we get to this idea? And you can see there's a, there's a political aspect to this. And especially with Florence, Florence identified itself with David. Florence viewed itself as the Goliath and actually tended to view Rome as, or sorry, it viewed itself as the David, and it, it tended to view Rome as the Goliath. So they were in this sort of political and cultural rivalry with Rome, which is a much larger city, uh, more powerful, and they viewed themselves as the scrappy underdog. So you see that David, um, what, the, what David meant for them, this idea they're growing in power and they're in their ability uh, to take on the, uh, the, the big bully. 
Um, so there's a political aspect to it, but there's something way more than politics that's evolved here. Beneath the politics, there's a whole view of what is the nature of man? What are human beings capable of? That you know we can appreciate 500 years later without knowing, having to know, know or care about the politics of Florence in, in 1500. All right, so, but how do we get to the point of having didactic art today? Well, first thing that happens is after these great achievements of Renaissance art, art tends to disappear. You have modernism comes in. And so Immanuel Kant, the, the philosopher that we objectivists like to blame for everything, who actually is responsible for a lot of bad things happening, he comes up with a theory uh, that says, well, the essence of art is, it doesn't really matter what you're portraying, you know, that, that your recreation of reality. So I don't talk about this being a selective recreation of reality, art imitates life. He says, no, 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 that's not important. What it is you're portraying isn't important. All that's important to art is, in art is the arrangement of lines and colors. And if we just, you know, that's the real essence of art and everything else is, is secondary and unimportant. And that idea starts to get put, he comes up with that in the late 1700s, early 1800s. That idea starts to get put into practice by the end of the 19th century. And I want to show you an example of that, of how we get to modernism in art. So this, oh, wait, uh, I had one more. I might return to that, but I, I don't want to get to that. Uh, this is from, or circa, I think around 1909, from Pierre Mondrian, Dutch painter. And he's starting, you see, he's starting to break down. It's a portrait painting of a tree, and it's recognizable as a this sort of withered, gnarled tree. But you see that he's starting to break it down into blocks of line and color. And he continues to do that in a whole series of paintings for over a couple of decades. So here's the next version. You see that the, it's still recognizable as a tree, but it's being broken down more into constituent parts of line, lines and blocks of, of lighter or darker gray. This that's around 1911, around 1912, he does this one. You see he's taking the next stage. It's just lines and blocks of color. And then this is around, uh, I think, 1913 that he does this one, maybe 19 or 13 or 1918. He does this in the middle of the 1910s. He does this one where you see he's gone completely. There's no recognizable tree at all. You've gotten rid of the thing that you're painting, the, the, the thing in reality that you're trying to recreate, and you've just got the lines and the colors. And then, of course, that brings us to, this is by 1930, you get this, which is what Mondrian's famous for. He's gone all the way to saying, no, we just have these big, thick, black rectilinear lines and then blocks of bright primary colors in between them. And you can see the whole development. I found this great image online where somebody laid out the whole development. So this is all, you know, the one on the left is, the upper left is 1909. The one on the lower left is sometime in the late 1920s. So you can see how over a period of about two decades, he starts with, here's a tree, here's a more, you know, a tree broken down into lines and, and blocks and broken down even more and then broken down so it's not even recognizable. And then it's all just lines and blocks of color. <clears throat> and that's this process that you get. Oh, uh, and this is basically in, in encapsulating the whole process of representational art being abandoned in favor of modernism. Now, this is called abstract art. This, you know, this version you get in the lower right is called abstract art because you're abstracting away from anything that you're actually, um, uh, any, any reference to facts of reality, any, any reference to something in real life that you're representing. But it's abstract art in a weird kind of way. So I wanna talk about what I mean by abstraction here. So to do that, I wanna use another painting. 
This is the School of Athens by Raphael, 1600s. Uh, and in this, he represents all the great philosophers and scientists of ancient Greece all together in one place. And in the center, you have Plato and Aristotle. And I'm pulling out Plato and Aristotle here because it shows us two different versions of abstraction, one of which is at the basis of Michelangelo's David, and one of which is at the basis of this modernist painting that we get from Mondrian. So Aristotle, you see famously on the, on the right here, he's gesturing outward to this world. And the idea that you gain abstractions by observing the facts of this world, by observing concrete things in this world, and then the abstractions are there to capture the essence of, to, uh, to help you understand the facts of this world. And that's the version of abstraction that you see in something like Michelangelo's David. He has an abstract message about the nature of man that he's conveying to you, but he's conveying to, to you in the form of, by means of, representing a concrete thing in the real world. Whereas Plato on the left here is pointing upwards to the realm of pure forms, to the realm of pure abstractions. And in Plato's philosophy, he said, the way you form abstractions is by ignoring, by, by not being distracted by observation of concrete things in this world, by going into a realm of pure abstraction. And that's how we get to something like Mondrian, where it's abstract, but in the sense of having no reference to anything in the world. The problem with that is it ends up kind of being boring and meaningless. And art, you know, despite all this talk about being abstract, this art has really nothing to say. So you end up with things like, you know, this painting by Vasily Kandinsky, one of the great modernist painters. Well, what's the message of this? What does this have to say about the nature of the world? What would this do for you in terms of understanding human potential? Well, it doesn't really convey anything. Or this one from Jackson Pollock, circa 1950, I think. Uh, it's, you know, called Jack the Dripper. Uh, he's got, uh, it's just drips of paint on a canvas. It's may give you a vague mood from the colors, but you know, it actually kind of looks like a maybe the, the graining in a, in a slab of marble. It doesn't have any particular message about the nature of man, the nature of the world. And you get, you know, the, this is famously lampooned by Norman Rockwell, that you, you have the, the connoisseur, this one's actually the painting is called The Connoisseur. You have the art enthusiast up there standing, looking at this thing, trying to get something out of it, but there's really nothing to be gotten out of it. So this, I think, sets the stage for the, the new thing I see emerging is that sort of this abstract modernism is sort of fading in the art world. And what's they needed, they realized they needed something that was more meaningful, something that had a, a, a message that could actually engage people. So they said, well, let's go, let's, let's, let's rely on politics. Let's go to politics as giving our meaning. And so you get something like this. So this is the uh, uh, made a stir a few years back. It was actually a marketing ploy for a hedge fund. But this was the fearless girl, this, uh, this girl with her hands on her hips facing down the charging bull uh, that's supposed to represent Wall Street. And the interesting thing about this one is uh, this was actually just a garden sculpture. The, the, the sculptor who, uh, who created this did not create it for this environment, should not create it to be put in the, this place. It was, it was just a sort of a, frankly, sort of mid-level garden sculpture that didn't have any particular meaning. The only meaning given to this it, uh, to the, the only meaning that was given to this uh, sculpture was its placement with reference to another sculpture that made it into a political statement. And so this is arguably one of the most famous works of sculpture that people have recognized in the last you know, 10, 20 years, but people only recognize it. People only see it as having meaning because it has a political statement attached to it. 
And another version of this, so I want to show, this is a, a, another painter who's, who's become famous. So now this painting is from uh, late 19th, oh, sorry, late 18th century, uh, early 19th century painter, Jacques-Louis David, a uh, uh, French painter, neoclassical in his style, and did this famous painting of Napoleon crossing the Alps on his horse, you know, gesturing for his troops to go forward. Uh, a bit propagandistic for the, the Napoleon regime, but this great heroic uh, uh, portrayal of, of Napoleon as the hero leading his troops on to cross the Alps. And more recently, there's a, a painter called Kehinda Wiley, who has become famous for doing a style that takes these old paintings and redoes them with a political gloss to it. So here's his version. And you see that this is, uh, it's Napoleon crossing the Alps. It's the exact same painting reproduced, but with a you know, contemporary African-American man wearing contemporary garb. If you can see, zoom closely in on that, uh, you'll notice he's wearing uh, Timberland uh, boots and you know, a camouflage jacket. And he's got uh, sort of sweatbands around his wrists. So it's the idea of you know, uh, a contemporary, uh, 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 an African-American man in contemporary casual garb put into the place of the old masters. So you get this sense that, again, the meaning of the piece, you know, in terms of, of this piece having its own separate meaning, it's entirely derivative on the original piece by David. It doesn't really have its own message. Its only message is one of a political uh, 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 message. The idea of, oh, we're going to, uh, replace the old masters with this, with with a, with uh, with new contemporary uh, uh, people in order to create a, a, a political message about re about how the old masters are stodgy and we need to uh, and and uh, you know the old palette of of characters they gave us is too limiting and we need to have a new racial politics dimension to this. Um, all right, so. That's what I see as happening in the, the didacticism of art is that the political message of the art, having the right political message is seen as more important than what it has to say on a deeper level about the nature of man. So the thing is that, as I pointed out with the, with the Florentine sculptures of David, there was a political overtone to it about this rivalry between Florence and Rome. But that political overtone was on top of something much more fundamental about the nature of man himself that gave you a, a, a deeper message that caused these things to last for 500 years outside of the initial political context in which they were developed. And I think that uh, is the key issue when it comes to the, you know, the art having a political theme or a political message uh, that it, has, it can have a political theme or a political message but it can't have only a political theme or a political message. It cannot be only about the politics of its own time. It also has to have a deeper message about, you know, what is uh, the potential for human beings in this world? What, what kind of things, what, what kind of people are we and what kind of world do we live and what's possible to us? That has to be the fundamental on which everything else is built. So Stephen, I don't know if you wanna have things you wanna add on that question. Good. No, that was a fascinating uh, tour. I, uh, I'm intrigued by this topic over for many years of uh, didactic art, uh, but I've never sat down and written anything about it just because I really dislike didactic art. And so I can't make myself do the homework necessary to, uh, to study enough of it to, uh, to come up with a, a rich theory. But 
What I did want to just add, and this is going to be echoing some of your points, is my hypothesis about what didactic art is and why it doesn't, doesn't work, except perhaps in the, in the short term for, uh, for ideological reasons, possibly, possibly political, political reasons as well. And I think the wrong way to think about it is to say that didactic art concerns itself with politics. And uh, so the way to escape the dangers of didacticism is just by not including politics in your work. I don't think that's the right way to do it. So I think your, your approach is, is better. It can, you know, art is a value laden enterprise and it can be about any value, human nature, romantic, uh, you know, religious, political, uh, metaphysical and, and so on. So I don't think we want at all to say there are some subjects that if you treat them, that makes you a didactic artist or, or a lesser artist, that you only have to restrict yourself to certain themes. I think any important value theme, political, religious, romantic, uh, metaphysical, cognitive, and so on, can be the, can be the subject of, of art. But then there's a difference between people who can integrate the politics into their art uh, well, and those who uh, end up being second raters, or they're not really interested in the artness of it, whatever that is, and that's where the that's where the failing is. So, uh, and this also then ties in with what you were talking about with the uh, the, the Renaissance uh, artists, uh, uh, which of course was 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 a great era, and I agree with you. I like the uh, the Michelangelo version the best. You know, he's like the greatest sculptor of all time in in my book. But uh, I think art exists on a, on a spectrum. There's both a cognitive spectrum and an emotional spectrum about how it engages with us human beings, since we are extraordinarily complicated psychological beings. And you know, art has physiological components as well, but primarily it's driven by psychological values. So the spectrum, I think of it as uh, you know, in philosophy, we are dealing with very abstract, very general principles, and I can write a treatise on some very general points philosophically about the nature of human beings and values and ontology and so on. And I might, if I'm a good philosopher, give lots of examples to illustrate those general points. But the point is that philosophy occupies a very general abstract part of the spectrum and, and it pushes our cognitive buttons uh, at that high abstract level very hard. Journalism is at the other end of the, the same, same spectrum. We engage with journalism cognitively, we can engage with journalism emotionally, we get worked up by news stories. But what's going on in journalism is not about the general, but about the, part, the particular, not about the abstract, but about the concrete. So it's this particular event happened with these particular people at this particular time. And there's not uh, in the journalism as journalism an emphasis on what is the broader meaning of this. That's where the analysts and, and, uh, and, and uh, historians and philosophers will start to start to generalize it. So what we then have is two very valuable things to us, philosophy and journalism, but they're maxing out opposite ends of the, the abstractness to particularity, uh, uh, generality, to, uh, to concreteness spectrum. And I think the way art works is by, uh, in one sense, occupying a middle sense there. It is occupied with the general abstract principles, the same ones that the philosophers are occupying themselves with, but they're also uh, dealing with concretes. And so they make particular characters and they have those particular characters with particular values and particular relationships engaging in, 
in uh, in uh, 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 particular contexts. I think that's largely why art has the power that it does. You know, so when we read journalism, at the same time, we also, are, as, as as human beings, want to know what's the broader significance of this. And that points us in a more general direction. At the same time, when we are reading philosophy, we're interested in the general abstract principles, but we're also finding ourselves saying, well, what does this mean in particular? What does this mean in action? And art is a, a, a uniquely powerful vehicle for integrating, integrating those two. So to come back to didacticism, just to say a couple of things, I think where didacticism goes wrong is not about being about politics, but being about politics too crudely. Or it's, it also, of course, didactic art can be religious, it can be philosophical. You know, there's, there's lots of bad, you know, say libertarian, objectivist, uh, 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 you know, literature and music, just as there's lots of bad religious literature and music and so on, just as there's lots of bad political literature, music and, and so on. But what's going on with, di uh, with, uh, with uh, didacticism is that it really is philosophy pretending to be art. The didactic writer or the didactic uh, uh, visual artist has a very general political message, religious message, sometimes even a philosophical message and that's what the person really cares about as, as an artist. Now, they are enough of an artist to recognize that art has some power. And so what they then will do is they will take their very general points, political points or whatever it is that they want, and just kind of put window dressing around them. And so it's a kind of fake seduction that they are they are getting into. And this is the thing that uh, is, is the big turnoff. We, we get the sense that the artist isn't really interested in the characters, isn't really interested in the plot. They just want to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to hammer home a particular ideological point that they have. So the analogy I, I, I always think of here is uh, kind of to dating and romance and, and sex. This is the one at least that works for me. So you go with the, uh, the stereotypical guy <clears throat> you know, who, when he's approaching a woman, he really just wants one thing. And so he wants to have sex. Now, that's his value agenda. That's a perfectly fine value agenda to have. But if that's the only thing you're interested in with respect to the woman, then when a woman realizes that, she's going to be turned off for the most part by, by the context. She will recognize, oh, he is going through all of these window dressing things. You know, he's calling me up, sending flowers, you know, saying nice things, right, and so on. But that's all, so to speak, window dressing for this real agenda. He's not interested in me as a whole person as a real human being, uh, as, a, as a full or human being. And I think that gets to what Rob was, uh, was suggesting as well. When we are doing art, it can't just be that you have a particular value point abstractly that you want to hammer home. You actually have to be interested in the whole character, the whole plot, the whole theme. It has to be the, the whole package. So didacticism is a, a failing in, uh, in that way. Now, um, do I have one the, more? Lawrence, one is that all right? Or you want to cut me off? Uh, I was going to say, Rob, if you want to do a quick uh, touch point on that, you're good. We're moving into the second half, but there also is one question that I'd like to get y'all thoughts on. Uh, okay, so, Rob, good. go ahead and. All right, your... so I'll yeah, pause on that and save. Very quick thing to add on that, which is um, so a great example I like to use is uh, Giuseppe Verdi, the great opera composer. A major theme in his works was the Risorgimento, the reunification of Italy in the middle of the 19th century. Big cause mm -hmm. that he was very dedicated to. But of course, we watch Verdi's opera now, and you know, most of us have no knowledge, and we don't care about the Risorgimento. It's, you know, it's, 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 mm -hmm. it's old news. It's way in the rearview mirror, because there was so much else that was in 
the in his operas that is is worth is worthwhile. And so I also like to think that you know Ayn Rand's novel The Fountainhead is on the one hand it's all, it's kind of about America during the red decade of the 1930s and the the vogue for socialism. That's where Ellsworth Tui comes from. But you know, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, people will read it for the character of Howard Rourke. They'll read it for the characters and for what's embodied in those characters that has a, has to do with way more than just what's the context of the red decade in, in the 1930s. Mm. And I think that's that's the difference. Yeah. Great. Um, there is a question that I'm going to have y'all ask, and then we'll go to the second topic. This is from our founder, Dr. David Kelly, um, he asks in the comment here, it seems to me that postmodernism in art had two core themes or goal. One, turning to political correctness as content, Rob's main point, and, but two, the destructive trashing of standards represented by the recent revision of David's Napoleon. Thoughts? Mm. Well, actually, so I want to say it's actually the I, I review that that the Kahinda Wiley's work is interesting because it's kind of the opposite of that is that he actually went out and acquired all these skills of representational painting. He can actually incredibly imitate the old masters in terms of technique. And so what I'm part of what I'm seeing is that this turn to didacticism in art is partly a way that technique and representational representational technique is creeping back in and being accepted again, but it's being accepted again only so long as it's subordinated to, well, you have the right political message. Yeah. Uh, that just representational technique so that you can make beautiful paintings of, 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 of people or landscapes, that's not respectable yet anymore, uh, at least not yet. What's respectable is it's okay to have this, this highly developed technique so long as you're using it for a, a correct political message. Mm. No, I think David's observation is, is right. Um, that postmodernism first is an emptying out of, uh, of anything positive. But I do think uh, a lot of the postmoderns, uh, both philosophically and in the art world, they weren't even necessarily political people at all. They were, they were uh, nihilists or tending toward nihilists. And so it was a much deeper than, uh, or a much deeper emptying of kind of everything is a void rather than just politics right being a void. So uh, I do think then that there were a second generation of people who once everything was hollowed out, you know, and partly that just became boring, uh, but also then uh, you have people who are attracted to art and uh, they still want to say something, but uh, all positive, genuine, great values have been hollowed out in their education and, and in their training. So all they're left with are, whatever the vogue values are of the day. And if that happens to be politically correct values, then they're going to get some more, some more traction. Right, nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. And when you hollow, when you empty everything out and hollow it out of meaning, then people will go searching around for something to put in there. I did wanna say one more uh, kind of optimistic point that there is a great resurgence of representational art. Uh, I, I mean, there is all of the grotesqueness where and a quasi postmodernists say we have to use representational techniques because uh, we need to have some content, but we'll use it toward negative ends. But at the same time, completely independent of that, there's a huge grassroots all over the world uh, uh, set of movements, and there's a lot of great stuff that's being done. Okay, so with that, we're cutting into the other time. So like I said, Stephen, uh, you're free to start on the topic okay. of the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto. Yeah. Okay. So let's enter into some 
some dark territory here, unfortunately. Uh, you know, obviously, we have in this country a, a, a pathology of uh, shooters who go out and kill lots of lots of people. So I knew nothing about this individual, you know, a week ago. Uh, but then, obviously, he's all over the news, and I found myself dipping into it. And it's the standard question, you know, what is going on with this with this fellow here? So. Apparently, uh, I learned he wrote a 180-page manifesto. Uh, just pause on that for a moment. 180 pages of, of writing. And he published it uh, prior to the, the shooting uh, on Google Docs and made it publicly available. Uh, much of it has been taken down, but there are various places online. And I found about 10% of it, and I got some screen captures. Now, I don't know exactly how... Uh, authentic, right? All of this is, but uh, my, my sense is that it is. But I did first want to just put up this image of the 10 people he killed, uh, you know, actual individual human beings living their life and, uh, you know, and now they're gone and it's just, it's just awful. You know, there are three other people who were shot uh, and, and injured, but these are the, the 10 people who were who were killed. So uh, where is the where is this guy coming from? You know, it's the standard question, what, what explains this individual? So what I want to do is just go through a few things that I have excerpted from the manifesto. This is the very first thing in the manifesto, the, uh, the preamble. And then I've, uh, with my excellent underlining skills, highlighted uh, a, a few things here. So what are his, uh, his occupations and preoccupations? And right off the bat, he says, it's the white birth rate and replacement fertility value. So he's focused on racial slash ethnic demographic trends, and he's worried that there's not going to be enough white people, however he defines that in the world, and that people in other uh, racial slash ethnic groups are reproducing at a, at a higher rate. So that's right off the bat, singled as the number one thing that he says coming out. He says some things about himself, birth date, and so on. Uh, he's 18 years old, so legally adult. But I found this interesting that he says, I am the sole perpetrator. So a point about responsibility. He's not going to shirk what he is doing. He's not going to say that other people made him do it. And so on. I am doing this and I am the only one who is, who is, uh, who's doing this. Uh, I found at the bottom this, uh, he's a high school graduate and he graduated with a Regents Diploma. This is in New York State with advanced designation. I didn't know quite what that meant, so I looked it up. You can graduate from high school in New York State. And in many cases, obviously, depending on the school, that doesn't mean very much. But Regents Diploma is a special uh, extra amount of work a student can do. Only the best students will attempt it. Uh, and it evolves, as it says here, you have to take a certain number of additional courses, uh, you have to take them at a higher level, and you have to pass what are called seven regents exams. And so this young man did all of that, and not only he did all of that, but he got the advanced designation, which is to say he scored high in, in all of that. Now that strikes me as significant, because one of the issues always is about the intelligence and sanity and informedness of the people who are engaged in uh, in these kinds of acts. Uh, a second, sorry, another uh, screen point here. This is now on uh, the uh, about the second page of the manifesto. Manifesto, and I need to move something here just so I can see it a little. Whoops, a little better. Sorry about this. Found this striking. My truth. The truth is, my 
personal life and experiences are of no value. I am simply a white man seeking to protect and serve my community, my people, my culture, and my race. And what's interesting about that is who he is in his self-description here is not as a personal individual. He's saying those, those things don't have any value whatsoever. And all of the others are group designations, right? What we might elevate to kinds of collectivisms, right? I am here to serve my community, serve my people, to serve my culture, to serve my race. I am simply a vehicle through which those values are pursued. And it's not just that I have lesser value, right? He does say no value for me as an individual. Uh, then a long list. He uh, chooses rhetorically to uh, you know, pretend that he is engaging in Q&A or question and answer with himself. So all of the usual things. Are you a Christian? He says, no, I don't think there's an afterlife. But he does say he accepts uh, and practices certain Christian values. Are you a fascist? Yes. Uh, are you a white supremacist? Yes. Are you a racist? Yes. Are you intolerant? Well, sure. There's a little bit more hesitation here. Um, but then interestingly, are you an anti-Semite? And then for the first time we get capital letters, right? And we get exclamation point. Yes, I am an anti-Semite and then very strong love, uh, language against uh, uh, Jews and, and wishing in effect to go back to hell and very demonic language. Now in part that's interesting because of the vehemence, right? Of his self-description as an anti-Semite, but it also is interesting that doesn't pair with his uh, description of himself as not being a Christian. Right? One of the things we know is there's a, usually a strong correlation between anti-Semitism and strong religion of some way, shape, or form. Okay, so there's an interesting list carrying on. Are you a neo-Nazi? Well, yes, I support neo-Nazism, but not with respect to any particular group. Are you a conservative? No. Rejects that label. Conservatism is, on his view, corporatism. He doesn't really say anything to my knowledge about what exactly he means by corporatism, but from some of the later things, I think we can make some, some, some guesses. Um, he seems fine with uh, lesbians, gays, and bi's. The way he puts it here, as long as they keep to themselves and stay in their own groups, he does single out transgender people and say that he thinks that's a psychological problem or a mental illness. Now, some more political questions. Are you right-wing? Well, we have to define our terms, so he's sensitive to enough to know that right wing, left wing, all over the map. What does anybody mean by that anymore? But there's a way you could describe me as right wing if you define your terms a certain way. And the same thing holds for left wing. It depends on what the definition. Same thing for are you a socialist? And again, it depends on the definition. So he is open to those designations, but smart enough to recognize we need to uh, uh, define the terms. This one I found interesting. This one is uh, uh, many pages into you. Uh, how did it affect? Did you become the person that you are? Are you, so to speak, socially conditioned by, by media, video games, music, literature, right, and so on? And he explicitly says, no, right? Uh, only the truth caused me to seek violence. So what he's indicating here is that he's thinking He's reading, he's evaluating, he's just not you know, absorbing whatever happens to be in media, social media, video games, and so on, and becoming an avatar for whatever is, uh, is presented there. Uh, did you always hold these views? And this is interesting. When I was 12, I was deep into communist ideology. Okay, now this is 
a very striking 12 year old, right? uh, at least in my, in my experience. I was not deep into any ideology when I was 12 years old, but he was, uh, talk to anyone from my old high school, you will hear that. So already reading, reading deeply, uh, and he knows what these terms mean. But then he says, ages 15 to 18, essentially high school years, he moved and he moved farther to the right. Now, how much farther to the right did he go? Well, then he says, now on the political compass, I fall into the mild, moderate, authoritarian left category. So if, however, we're constructing the spectrum, we've got far left and communism is there and then whatever far right is, he has moved to the right, but he still sees himself as somewhere, I would guess, in around here, still on the left and still on the authoritarian left, but mildly to moderately. And then he says he prefers the label populist, whatever that's going to mean. Uh, why don't you care so Europe so much and then just blah, blah, blah. Uh, so this is not uh, uh, um, uh, uh, purely ideological in, in, uh, in one sense, but it's cultural, it's uh, ethnic, and he's identifying as a kind of European and says America is in effect a European offshoot. Uh, so, but then he goes through culture, language, political beliefs, philosophical beliefs, identity, all of those things are European, but then also interestingly, most importantly, right, my blood is European. So it's a more biological uh, phenomenon. The more ideological, philosophical is important, but of lesser importance. So this is a more biologically driven uh, ideology at work here. What are your views? And then he says, well, as before, I would prefer to call myself a populist, but, and then we have some long hyphenated hybrid things. You can call me an ethno-nationalist. He's fine with that. You can call me an eco-fascist national socialist if you want. I wouldn't disagree with you. So he's going to accept all of those labels. Uh, what about immigrants and capitalists to say, why do you uh, blame immigrants and not capitalists? So he clearly does think immigration is a problem. Uh, immigrants, uh, from his perspective, if they're not coming from Europe, anywhere else in the world, uh, against all of that. So both are the problem. What's interesting here is that he's adding the capitalist as a problem. So he is anti-capitalist as well. Both of them are a problem. So we have to get rid of the immigrants. We have to get rid of the capitalists as well. And then he is uh, just making a scarce resources point at the end. Both have to be addressed. I'm simply attacking one at a time. And he, apparently he's going to be focusing on uh, uh, immigrants and people who are in the wrong racial group. So those are my extracts from the things that were available to me online. And what I've got here is a summary list. Uh, youthfully, he was a communist. He was a national socialist, fascist, racist, anti-Semit, anti-immigration, anti-capitalism, and anti-individualism. Now, in ideological terms, uh, if we take this straight, I think this makes him a straight-up fascist or national socialist uh, of the 1920s or 1930s. And so uh, if we take this document seriously, then he strikes me as being exactly like intelligent young people back in the 1920s in Italy and Germany who were true believers in 
certain kinds of collectivism, uh, the fascist one, the national socialist one, he accepts that label. Interestingly, he does say that he was, in his youth, he was a communist. And so in that sense, he is retracing the same steps that Mussolini, for example, retraced, who was a communist as a young man and well into his adulthood, but then shifted to the so-called right and became a, a fascist. Or someone like Joseph Goebbels, who was also deeply into communist literature, but ended up, as we know, being a national socialist. So there is, of course, the question, this is a manifesto. Uh, manifestos sometimes are meaningless, sometimes they are meaningful. So the question would be, how seriously should we take this, this particular manifesto? These are the four questions I ask myself with respect. Obviously, people can be sane and write manifestos, or they can be uh, the crazy ravings of, of someone who has lost touch from reality. Uh, it can be an intelligent work, or it can be an unintelligent work. Right? It can be uh, genuine, it can be sincere, or it can just be a, a rationalization for something that's held on other grounds. And of course, it can be something that the person came up with on his own, uh, and that it is his product, or of course, it can be that he's just channeling or mirroring whatever he's picking up in the zeitgeist and trying to, to fit into a certain crowd. I think uh, uh, this is an open question. My sense from what I have read uh, so far, and this is very tentative, very partial, I don't know this guy at all, and this is just one week, but my reading is, this guy is sane. Uh, he's obviously extremely intelligent. I think he means it. And I think, uh, I think he's in, in control. He's, uh, he's generating it on himself. This is his grasp of, of the issues. But uh, I'm open to, uh, to more data and I'm gonna be following up on this. Yeah, I, I, the same thing I find what interesting about that is I find this guy's a beefsteak Nazi. Uh, this is a term that the Nazis used to use in the 1930s for, uh, they had a lot of converts who came into Nazism from communism. So they called them beefsteak Nazis. The idea is they're red on the inside and brown on the outside. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that they, they, inside, they were still dedicated to communism, but then they, you know, they, they adopted the national socialist thing. And I think one of the big messages here is how, you know, we, we usually grow up with the state, how Nazis and communists, complete opposites. But, you know, in the 1930s, it was so common that they had a name for it, that the people would move back and forth from one to the other. Yeah. And how non-different, not different, those two ideologies are. Yeah, I know, absolutely, that's, that's, that's right. Um, yes, you know, and the, the way we always phrase it is they are all forms of collectivism. They are anti-individualistic, anti-capitalistic, all to their core. And so it's just a debate over which collective you are going to uh, subsume your identity into. Yeah, that's what I find is interesting. He says, I'm a social, I'd be okay with workers, with workers owning the means of production, but it depends on who currently owns the state. So it's really, I mean, this is, this is classic Nazism, that it's not about, they weren't really against nationalization. They weren't against totalitarian state control. They just yeah. wanted to make sure that the right ethnic group, the right racial and ethnic group controls the state. And as long yeah. as the right racial and ethnic group, group controls it, that's okay to do all the things the communists are doing. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to address your question about, you know, how seriously do you take these manifestos? Because I, I think it is absolutely true that oftentimes you have a certain psychology involved here, that these are people who are disaffected. He's bright or considers himself to be intelligent, but then considers himself not to be you know, rewarded or embraced by the world uh, and to be alienated from the world. And he's lashing out. I mean, the person clearly, to some extent, is psychologically unhinged and disturbed or else he wouldn't go out and shoot people. But 
this, I think it's an interesting question. So, you know, you, you, we saw this with the Unabomber. He had a manifesto and it was also clearly somebody who had deep mental problems going back uh, decades. So I think it's kind of, I want to, send, to what extent I think that you could sort of, you can ask that question of to what extent does this person acting on a disturbed psychology and just looking for rationalizations. But then the questions would be, why is it that he found rationalizations here? That's right. Why is it that this ideology is what gave him you know, if he was looking for an excuse to kill people, why is it that this ideology gave him the rationalizations to do mm -hmm. it? And I think that's interesting because I think you're not going to uh, necessarily, you know, classical liberalism is not going to give you this license to go shoot people in the middle of in the middle of a, a, a supermarket or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that you have this anti-individualist ideology and he says my personal life is no of no value only the race you know, that's hitler saying du bist nicht dein volk ist alles you know you are nothing that your people your race is everything and that racial collectivism and the idea that the individual is of no value that is a crucial thing that we know historically time and time again has been the idea that gives people a license to kill you know if they're if they're if you have an angry disturbed you know, rejected artists from Vienna who, who, who's, who's itching to kill people to get revenge for not being recognized in life, uh, yeah. which is basically Adolf Hitler. It's this, the, the collectivist ideology that says the individual is worthless and only the race is, only the collective is everything. It gives him that license to kill that he's looking for. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, I think we can say, you know, on the one hand, yes, he's psychologically disturbed, but there's also this ideology that helps encourage that and foster that and give him the excuse to do the things he wants to do. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I think there might be a third factor, which is perhaps a slightly more accidental factor, because suppose we take that line of development. You start off with someone who is basically disturbed, alienated, self-loathing enough, and just wants to kill. And so is looking for an excuse to kill. Uh, then we say, but there's actually lots of ideologies out there that would give you an excuse to kill. So there's a long history of people, you know, communism. Uh, they latch on to communism and communism gives them an excuse to go out and kill a large number of people. Uh, you know, 15 to 20 years ago with uh, the war on terrorism and politicized Islam, Islamism coming along, large number of disaffected people, Actually, I don't know how large the number was, but a significant number disaffected people from the West converting to Islam. And it seems like precisely that they are looking for an excuse to go out and kill certain sorts of people. And then we have the, uh, the, the racist, nationalist, Nazi version of this as well. So it could then be that there are all of these ideologies out there, if we kind of imagine a supermarket of ideologies, all of which would, you know, if you pick this one off the shelf, rationalize your desire to kill, and that's what you then take home uh, and you uh, you become that particular person. And that then would be uh, partly a matter of accident. That kind of person, given what's being most prevalent in their culture, in the chat rooms, in the parts of the internet that they are hanging out or whatever, that they're most likely to latch onto. And then it's just going to be kind of a marketing game for those kinds of, uh, those kinds of ideologists. Now, I think in this case, from what I've seen here, this fellow is, not in that category because he's aware of communism and he's rejected pure communism. He's aware of Christian ideology and presumably some of the competitor religions and he has rejected those ones. So I think the additional element has to be that he has looked at them and he's assessed them and in some 
kind of processing, he has come to the view that this particular ideology is the best one or the truest one, because he does mention the word truth quite a few uh, quite a few times. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, do, I think there's something to the idea of the supermarket of ideologies, and you're picking the one that matches you. And yeah. it does depend to some extent on the, the vogue of the age, you know, that... Uh, uh, 50 years ago, you know, young college kid who uh, is angry at uh, angry at the world was much was probably more likely to become, you know, join the weather underground to become, uh, you know, motivated by communism. And it depends, I think, partly on what is considered to be the sort of up and coming validated right, or whatever sexy in your generation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or what seems plausible to your generation, what a lot of people think sounds plausible to them. I think communism sort of has passed a sell by date. Environmentalism seems to be a definite strain. Uh, a lot of these guys who consider right wing also have this eco-fascist element to them because yeah. environmentalism yeah. has this very strong and it has such a strong anti-humanist aspect to it. Human yeah. beings are the problem that yeah. I think it also has this enduring appeal to that to someone with that kind of psychology. Right. Okay. I see Lawrence there. Does that mean uh, question time? Well, I it's been a great conversation. I don't want to interrupt, but there is something that was brought up by a couple different questions that I kind of wanted to raise to the both of you to get your thoughts on because it's uh, rather interesting. Um, Ogun Garvey on YouTube asks, a good bit of the manifesto, according to what he's read, uh, appears to be copied and pasted from another manifesto by Brenton Tarrant. And I'm not mm. familiar with the proof, but I guess New this Zealand comes up with guy, the, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think 19. Right. Yeah. I think it just that, goes into a bigger right. thing of um, copycats or social media or people just seeing things. And it's that question of what is it? What is there more to it? Is there more to it? Is it simply just their own beliefs or is it they see this stuff happening and there's some sort of impetus for them to follow suit with these sort of copycat shooters, so to mm -hmm. speak, that we see? Yeah. Well, you know, beyond all, in each of these uh, mass shooting events, uh, there is, even ones that don't have a cause, their, their cause is they want attention to themselves. They want to be seen as significant. They want, they want media coverage. They want attention to themselves. And so that's how you get the copycat element. They see, oh, well, somebody else did this and got lots of attention. So I will go do the same thing. And sometimes, in this case, I, I'd heard that, that, that some of it was copied. So in this case, I'm going to copy and paste parts of the other guy's manifesto um and and use that and I, I think there is this element so the interesting thing about this is that the the connection between the psychology and the ideology that on the one hand i think if you adopt this ideology it will consist in an anti-individualist ideology it will consistently take you in a murderous direction because that is its actual implication it is by, by virtue of being anti-individualist it is in favor of the idea that individual life is worthless and should be sacrificed for the cause whatever that cause happens whatever version happens to be so on the one hand, if you adopt the ideology, it will lead you to become a killer. On the other hand, those ideologies tend to attract people who have that murderous psychology, that sort of personal rage against the world uh, psychologically to begin with. So it's this sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a chicken and the egg question, or maybe it's just a vicious cycle would be the best way to put it, is right. it gets started either from the ideological or psychological end. And it, they, those, the psychological and ideological aspects you know, feed off of each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, in my, my personal life, when I was young, I've known any number of young people uh, my age who were, you know, normal, well-adjusted, you know, Canadian kids, but they did become radicalized from what they read. And so their psychology changed uh, consequent to 
what they were reading in university and and beyond. Uh, I did another just kind of an open question at this point. Uh, I, I think eleven of the thirteen people who were shot were black and two were white. Uh, so he did intentionally go into a black neighborhood in in uh, um, in Buffalo. Oh. And it, so it is interesting uh, of all of the things that he is against. He's in, against immigrants of all sorts. He's against capitalists. He's against you know Semites uh, and and so on. Why this particular group first? Uh, none of them were immigrants. You know, for example, these were you know people who were Americans, uh, you know, born and raised. So for all of the anti-immigrant uh, work, it doesn't seem to be his highest priority. And uh, despite the fact that every time he talks about the Jews, it's capital letters, and he really seems to hate hate the Jews. He didn't go into you know an Orthodox neighborhood in uh, in New York City and start shooting shooting Jews, or you know take a submachine gun into Silicon Valley and start wiping out capitalists or Wall Street or or whatever. So uh, again, this is just a hypothesis. It might be that there's a kind of racism, and that really is his first priority, and he's going after them, uh, but. That's an open question. Well, and I well, think speaks to the psychology versus the ideology that it may be the psychological motive was I hate black people and the you know and that the ideology is built on top of that to rationalize it. But yeah, that was the be, yeah, no. yeah. Other things that we don't know. Well, with that, it was a very interesting conversation. Some a, a dark topic, but it's good to have these conversations yeah. to go into it. So with that, thank you so much, Rob and Stephen, for doing this current events discussion. And thank all of you who watched and submitted questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. We just ran out of time. But if you do have other questions you'd like to ask either of our two panelists today or any of our other scholars at the Atlas Society, I encourage you to check out our website, check out our events page, uh, Stephen will be doing his next lecture on education's villains and heroes in two weeks. And then Rob will be doing a Ask Me Anything on Clubhouse next Tuesday. So I encourage you to look into those, check those out. And if you like what we're doing here at the Atlas Society, please consider a tax-deductible donation. Mm. And be sure to also tune in next week here on the Atlas Society Ask when we'll be having Spencer Jacob, a Wall Street uh, economist who will be talking about GameStop uh, yeah. situation that happened yes. last year. Yeah. All With right. That, Enjoy your remarks, Rob. Thanks for those. Appreciate the organization, Lawrence. Bye for now. Take Thanks care, everyone. everyone.